0: Welcome to When the People Decide, I'm Jenna Spinelli. If you enjoyed our episode on civic media earlier this season, that you will definitely want to check out this episode from the Local News Matters podcast. As the name suggests, the show is all about innovation that's happening in local news and how newsrooms across the country are stepping up to fulfill their role in American democracy. This episode features a conversation between host Tim Reagan Porter and Steve Waldman, the founder of Rebuild Local News, an organization that uses public policy to support local journalism. So they talk about the some of the perils of government involvement in local news, how to balance public policy concerns and local news reporting, Steve's time at an organization called Report for America, which places reporters in newsrooms across the country. So if you want to geek out about the future of local news, check out this episode and then subscribe to Local News Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Tim Reagan Porter for sharing this episode with us, and I hope you enjoy this conversation.
1: What actually happens is, you know, it's a vacuum. You create an information vacuum when the the local news goes away and something fills the vacuum and in in this case what's filling the information vacuum is national cable news social media talk radio next door websites informal you know conspiracy theories and there's no pushback from verifiable information
2: Welcome to the Local News Matters Podcast, where we explore pathways to stronger journalism, better businesses, and healthier communities. I'm Tim Regan-Porter, CEO of the Colorado Press Association. Each episode, I sit down with guests from newsrooms and others in the local news ecosystem to highlight the innovative work of local newsrooms and those that support them, as well as the crucial questions they face. You can support this work by doing something that will take you literally five seconds to do – in whatever podcast player you use, simply click follow. If you have five more seconds, click five stars in Apple Podcast. It means a lot, and that is all that we ask in exchange for all of the work that goes into this podcast. You can find all episodes, full transcripts, and relevant links, and sign up for our newsletter at localnewsmatterspodcast.com. And now this episode, I'm excited to bring you Steve Waldman, CEO and founder of Rebuild Local News. Steve has a long history of innovative and game-changing work in local and national news. Most recently, he was co-founder and president of Report for America, a national service program that has proved invaluable to newsrooms and communities across the country. He was also senior advisor to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of BeliefNet, national editor for U.S. News and World Report, and editor of the Washington Monthly. As you'll hear, Steve cares deeply about fostering healthy local news in every community, and his new focus is on using public policy to do so. It's an effort that I and my organization believe is crucial, and we've joined Rebuild Local News as steering committee members. Journalist advocating for public policy is something that doesn't come naturally to most journalists, and it's fraught with perils. But I contend that there's too much at stake to leave this important tool unused just because it's messy and we're uneasy. In this conversation, Steve guides us through these perilous waters and delivers arguments that are both reasoned and impassioned, and you'll get a little history lesson to boot. And now I bring you Steve Waldman. Thanks for joining me, Steve. Great to be with you. I want to go into a little bit of your history and delve into what you're working on now. And there are a lot of nuances we'll go into. But why don't you give me the short version of what Rebuild Local News is and why you started it? It's a public policy coalition of about 30 different national and state
1: groups, all working to try to rebuild and revitalize local news. And we, we all kind of came together out of the belief that public policy and a government role needs to be a piece of the puzzle as we try to figure out how to, how to save local news. No, no one thinks it's, you know, the main piece, actually. You know, we all think that we all have to just do better with our, our business models and our engagement with communities and that we need more nonprofit newsrooms and more philanthropy. That's all really, really important. But public policy has to be part of it, and it had been relatively neglected. And so we all got together to try to figure out what would be some kinds of policy ideas that could really help, but do so in a First Amendment-friendly way that would preserve editorial independence, but still really help.
2: And full disclosure, I should say that the Colorado Press Association is a member and part of the steering committee for Rebuild Local News. But, of course, we joined it because we believe in the mission. Let's, get, let's address the sort of the elephant in the room for a lot of journalists. And we'll, there's a lot of nuance to this, and we'll dig into that over time. But when I started the Press Association, I was new to lobbying. And it's very uncomfortable for journalists to get involved in public policy. We, there's a church-state thing here that is black and white for many journalists. But I've heard a lot of evolution. I think journalists are rethinking that. But what do you say to those who say in no way, shape, or form should journalists court government support for journalism?
1: Well, I think it's a totally legitimate concern, but it's not one that we should be paralyzed by because, first of all, throughout American history, there have been efforts from the government to help the media that have been fine. They've been better than fine. They've worked really well and been important and haven't undermined editorial independence at all. And so we know that it's doable. It's absolutely right and appropriate to maintain a, a cautiousness about what the right way is. It is doable. It can, you can come up with ideas for how to do this in a way that protects editorial independence. But beyond that, I would say in a way it's no different from any other kind of revenue source. If you became overly dependent on one car dealer, you're really going to have a hard time writing accurate stories about that car dealer. And if you become overly dependent on one foundation, you're really going to have distortions in your coverage. So, But despite the potential distorting influence of advertising, newsrooms have figured out ways to do both, to take ads and still have editorial integrity at the same time. And I think that's what would happen if we have government support of the right kind.
2: And I would even throw in there reader revenue, which I think the growth of reader revenue is healthy for the industry, but it's not without its downsizes. I mean, do we start catering now to those who can afford to be members or pay subscriptions?
1: That's a great point. I think we see this in other contexts where as you get more niche and more dependent on reader revenue, it can totally affect what your coverage is and make you less diverse, make you narrower in your uh, articles. I think they all have their risks and the best thing is if you could have a diversity of different revenue streams and of course the other thing i would say is the, the other reason i think we have to explore this is the risk of doing nothing is probably the biggest risk you know we know what's happening and we know it's going to continue to happen if we don't do anything so we can't just study the government role as a philosophical matter as the entire local news system collapses around us
2: and you mentioned government support in US history i think there's this fiction that that we've maintained this purity that is that has never been there
1: yeah from from literally day one of our country one of the first big things they did was pass a massive taxpayer subsidy for newspapers. The Post Office Act of 1792, signed into law by President Washington, essentially created a very large subsidy for the newspaper industry. And it was in the form of basically they had to pay very little in postage for mailing. And it was interesting because the debate really was between people who said they should pay very little and people who said they should pay nothing. And in the camp of people who said they should pay nothing was James Madison, who literally wrote the First Amendment. So that gives some comfort to those of us who worry about the First Amendment the guy who wrote the First Amendment then the next day advocated for a really significant taxpayer subsidy of newspapers. Now, it, and it worked, by the way. I mean, it was really incredibly effective at helping to stand up a new newspaper industry and to Tocqueville famously when he came along a little while later, one of the things he commented on is just the enormous number of newspapers that seem to exist in, in America. Now, so we've actually looked a lot, you know, in addition to the fact that I'm a history buff and I always find that, you know, interesting. what well, why did it work? Like what were the characteristics of that that made it not backfire? And I kind of think it's two things. The one was that there wasn't a lot of subjective judgments going into it about which newspapers were good or, or accurate or misinformation or anything like that. It was a pretty blunt instrument, really. It was a newspaper that pretty much had words and covered stuff and was on paper and was being mailed. And the, the policy was tied to the distance of the newspaper was traveling, not to anything about the quality or content of the newspaper, if it was a penny, if it was under a certain distance and a penny and a half, if it was over a certain distance, that and that was it. And the other thing is that it benefited all sides. the you know, the Federalists back then thought the Jeffersonian papers were just as scurrilous and filled with misinformation that, as, you know, modern people would say about the media they don't like. And the Jeffersonians thought the Federalist Paper were leading the way to a monarchy. So they all hated each other's press as much as we do today. But they kind of thought, well, but we're getting our support. It's fine for them to get their support. That's the way this is going to work. We will all have our voices out there and we'll create this newspaper industry, which everyone agreed was really important for helping to launch and sustain a new country.
2: Right. And government involvement with the press didn't stop there. I mean, FCC licenses broadcast stations who produce news, and at times we had the fairness doctrine and things like that impacted news. My industry with print newspapers, which is not all we are, but that's predominantly what our association represents, we maintain public notices, which have been around for decades and decades. And, you know, newspapers serve a valuable role in getting information out about the inner workings of government. And for some of those technical aspects, they pay us to disseminate that information.
1: Right. And the FCC example is an interesting one because it kind of reminds us that sometimes government policy can be really important and impactful without it actually involving a subsidy. So the postal thing is a subsidy. The public notice is sort of a quasi-subsidy. I mean, it's not really a subsidy in that it's paying for a service but you know it is writing a check to the newspaper the federal communications commission's licensing of broadcast tv stations and other things they do are examples of public policy that have really big impacts on how media evolves and certainly financial consequences but without there being you know the government writing a check you know one example of that was they made a decision when they were starting to give out licenses to do it to local stations we try to take that for granted now but that was a policy decision that they made that was actually different from what other countries were doing where which had national broadcast networks from the beginning and we decided no we're going to emphasize the local control of everything and so the actual license broadcast licenses are given out to local tv stations and local radio stations and that really affected how our media developed in profound ways. And so I think that's the other thing we ought to be looking at now is, yes, there are subsidies that I think are appropriate because public service journalism on the local level is, is a public good that taxpayers ought to help subsidize. But there's other policy decisions that indirectly and directly may help determine whether our democracy is strong or not and what kinds of information we have.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about the state of the industry and why you think it's necessary to really turn your focus to public policy.
1: Yeah. Cause it, it is really true. that part of why I feel like upturning my public policy is just how bad it's gotten out there and how discouraging the kind of big trend lines are. So as you know, The the statistics for what's happened in the last fifteen years or so are are really alarming. The scale of the collapse is just it's kind of mind boggling even to me. You know, you've had almost a sixty, a six zero percent drop in the number of reporters or newsroom employees in less than two decades. I mean, that's a really big, big drop, really fast. You had an eighty one percent drop in the amount of advertising revenue that newspapers got in about a two-decade period. I mean, that's much faster than like the coal industry's collapse. And, and that plays out in really very specific ways. There's been thousands of newspapers that have been shut down. There's about 1,800 communities at least that have no local news source at all. And then there's this whole phenomenon of what we call ghost newspapers, a lovely newly invented term to describe this new phenomenon, which is Newspapers that still exist, they still publish words on paper and they, you know, tend to be filled with uh, wire service copy and, and things like that. But they have very little and in and, and some cases, no actual local coverage. And there's a lot of those. Those are like, you know... A, one estimate is at least a thousand of those. All that adds up to is that you just have less and less coverage of communities. So even in areas where there there's something going on where it doesn't seem like a total desert, things have gotten way worse. And we know that the, there's really serious consequences of this. It's, you know, we've, we've seen intuitively, and now there's academic studies that back this up, that when in communities that don't have good local news, all sorts of social and civic indicators turns south lower voter turnout uh less volunteering at the pta more corruption higher taxes lower bond ratings you know it's over over and over again all these different things that lead to just less healthy communities sometimes literally less healthy as we saw with covid so and then the last one i would mention is that there is now evidence that the decline of local news also causes polarization and misinformation that's maybe it takes a little explaining like Why would that be the case that the decline of local news would lead to polarization? In some ways it's a little counterintuitive, because we're all troublemakers and like controversy and you think, well, maybe if we went away there'd be less polarization. But what actually happens is, you know, it's a vacuum. You create an information vacuum when the when the local news goes away and something fills the vacuum. And in in this case, what's filling the information vacuum is national cable news, social media talk radio, next door websites, informal, you know, conspiracy theories and there's no pushback from verifiable information. So, one of the ways that political scientists try to get at polarization is to look at the proclivity of people in any given community to occasionally do split-ticket voting, you know, vote for someone who's not their preferred party. And that's another thing that happens. So, when you have less Local news, you literally have less split ticket voting. It becomes more partisan, more based on what you heard on cable news that night. So the, the the consequences are really profound and for democracy in the abstract, but just for people getting information they need for their families, you know, about their schools and their healthcare and just basic functions of life.
2: And you you are careful, I think, intentionally careful to continually refer to local news, because one of the things I think sometimes gets lost in the the national discussion of media is, is all the distinctions. I mean, what Fox News and CNN and MSNBC is doing is very different than what the New York Times is doing. And that's very different than what the Denver Post or a Small Weekly is doing. And the The night Gallup poll showed historic lows in trust in media, news media, uh, but local news was much higher. And sometimes I think we're just very sloppy in how we talk about news. You know, I I see people complaining about the news media not covering something, and they're linking to a story talking about that very thing. And what they mean is they're not talking about it on CNN or their friends are not talking about it on Facebook. Uh, But can you expound a little bit about sort of your interest in local news versus everything else that sometimes gets lumped in that discussion.
1: That's a really important point because, and it cuts both ways, like I, I often see people say the media is too opinionated or the media is biased and nine times out of 10, they link to a cable TV, a national cable TV story. That seems to be the way, the main thing that gets under people's skin. It gets under my skin too. It serves its its function, but it's such a they have such a different approach and business model compared to local news that it really is night and day. And you see it in that same survey that, as you said, that the local news is more trusted than national news. The bad news about that survey is that even though that gap persists, it's getting lower. Like that local news is starting to erode and. Uh, that's just could be tragic and and there's another thing that is contributing to that, and i I don't know if you have this problem in Colorado, but there's this new phenomenon that has gotten labeled as called pink slime. And what's you know what that's referring to is another wave of websites, mostly that are really concocted by bad faith actors to impersonate local news sites. And they're not exactly, they're not, it's not full of made-up information. It's usually stocked of with wire service copy and syndicated material that is accurate and looks like a real thing. The trick is that amidst all that credible-looking stuff is mysteriously the articles about the local congressperson always are very negative or very positive, depending on who's putting it. And, and that's because it's actually being bankrolled by that candidate or by that candidate's opponent without telling anyone. There's another version of it that is like a kind of pay-for-play thing where a business will sponsor, there's an an article mysteriously appearing in this strange new thing that looks like a local newspaper or news website about how great this hotel is without disclosing that it was paid for by the hotel. It's basically an advertisement without disclosing it. There's last count, there's more than like 1,400 of these things around the country. And so I think the other reason I feel like this is a race against time and why we need to be assertive about this, including government, is that the other thing that's flooding into these vacuums is pink slime sites. And that's just going to further erode trust. Like the more that happens, the more people will, will appropriately not know what to trust. And now all of a sudden... There's confusion on the local level. There's all these things that look like local newspapers, but they're making stuff up. So that's only going to
2: make things worse if we don't push back. Yeah, and I shudder to think about what's going to happen when those bad actors really start using AI. I mean, they can now really churn out articles.
1: No, you're right. It really does look legit, and it will be really asking a lot for people to be able to tell the difference. it's It's already hard to for a regular person to try to distinguish verified information or reputable sources from non-reputable sources. Uh, and that is going to make it much worse.
2: So the pink slime sites uh, leads me into getting at some of the nuances of the work you're actually doing. So while we talked about the justification for doing it, you and I have, and the steering committee and I'm sure many of your conversations have delved into there are better ways to do it than others, ways that are, make you less open to retribution from the government. And on the flip side, you also want to make sure that you're targeting good actors or minimizing the number of bad actors can, that can benefit from the public policy initiatives. Can you Talk about sort of both of those aspects.
1: Yeah, and those those goals are sometimes at odds or a tension with each other. So I'll give an example of one extreme would be you have a, a government agency give out grants to local news organizations. Now, the good news is there could be someone sitting there in the office who could tell whether it's a pink slime site that they would be able to determine that and knock out the pink slime sites. But we really don't like that approach because it gives way too much authority to someone in the government and it has too much discretion. And so it would be very easy to see how the state government could reward and punish local news organizations that they like or don't like. So we tend to prefer things like a tax credit for small businesses in Colorado that advertise with local news. That's an idea that Uh, I think you all have proposed and it's been kicked around in other states. That's an interesting example. It's kind of an, it's, it's a sort of new approach. It's creative. And so the idea is that the tax credit, the government benefit would actually go to a small business, you know, a dry cleaner or a restaurant or something like that. And they would decide where they would like to advertise, whichever entity, you know, makes most sense for them. And then there'd be a real subsidy. So like if they were going to do $2,000 worth of advertising, they would essentially be able to get $4,000 worth of advertising with the government picking up the other half. And I kind of like that because it's, first of all, there's no government official deciding who gets what. It's basically small businesses making the decision based on their needs. And I also like it because the newspaper still has to work for it. You know, they still have to they have to deliver for the advertiser. They have to be good, <laughs> you know, they have to be good enough to have readers that trust them. That's part of part of the argument for why, you know, a business ought to advertise in a newspaper is that you have a trusting readership and that you have credibility. So so it creates some nice incentives and really avoids the First Amendment problems. Another example that we were advocating for on the federal level was a is a refundable payroll tax credit for newsrooms that hire or retain local reporters. And in the model of the Founding Fathers, you know, Blunt Instrument Postal Subsidies, it would be very widely available. You know, the bad news is that we'll cover all sorts of organizations that any one of us might not love, but it's just all local news. The thing I like about that one is it has a it has kind of a nice incentive structure of a different sort. It is supposed to be about hiring or retaining reporters. So, if you are a you know a hedge fund owned newspaper uh, or any newspaper for that matter, if you cut staff, you're cutting your subsidy too. The subsidy goes down, and if you're increasing your hiring, your subsidy would go up. So now the downside is when you're doing a, a, a something like that has just some broad standards, you got to get kind of clever in order to keep the pink slime out because, you know, you don't want, you know, a pink slime official being in charge or just knocking it out. You want to try to create objective standards. That's not that easy. And what we came up with to try to do that were certain objective standards like, well, first of all, does the news organization have at least one full-time local reporter? Because some of these bad actors are actually based in California and they create these sites all over the country, just using algorithms. So do you have a local reporter? Do you disclose who owns you? Do you have media liability insurance? You know, that's not foolproof, but generally good operations do have it. So we put in things like that. Oh, and that you couldn't be owned or financed by a political action committee. That was another standard so you try to get at the risks through through kind of objective black and white standards that have as little subjectivity to them as you can
2: you know one of the one of the challenges i see at the state level and maybe you see it at the national level too is really educating politicians policymakers about the industry and the state we're in Positive and negative. You know, a lot of my peers don't like it when they hear all of the the doom and gloom, because it's not all doom and gloom. I think, you know, we can't stick our head in the sand either. But one of the frustrating things for our industry, I've heard politicians use the language like, why should we bail out a failing industry? It is a challenged industry, but I think it's way too harsh to call it a failing industry. Our readership is through the roof. And the pandemic illustrated the crucial role we play and how many people turn to us. And we've got readership study after readership study that show the vast majority of people, you know, 80, 90% of people look to their local news outlets every month. And, and, and you know, you go look at ComScore data. In almost every city in the country that has a local news outlet, it's either the newspaper or the TV station. They're one in two for most trafficked websites in the city. That's not failing. That's an industry that's challenged in terms of monetizing it. But this is not, this is not a buggy whip for something that's just going out of style. This is not coal that is being transitioned to clean energy, right? This is something we're, we're just trying to figure out the right business model. And we made lots of failures and have lost the trust of our audience sometimes by things we've done. But by and large, this is an industry that I think needs support because of the systemic factors that are going on with advertising and, and everything else.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. I think you're absolutely right. And it's I'm always careful when we talk about the origins of this and the the internet disruption to say the business model was disrupted. Not because the internet drew away readers, but because the internet drew away advertisers. That, as you said, the actual audience for local news is as big as ever. It's just that it's through a mechanism that is much harder to monetize. And that's the reality. And, of course, there's two responses there. One is we're all working hard to try to figure out how to come up with better ways of monetizing. But we also know that in life and in America, there are certain functions that are performed for a community... That we don't expect them to be businesses, right? You know, schools and colleges are nonprofit organizations. And we don't say, well, that's a failed model. We shouldn't have schools because they're not paying for themselves. And most hospitals at this point are nonprofits. We don't say, well, that's a failed business model. We shouldn't have hospitals. And to even be a little more precise about it, most communities have both libraries and bookstores. We don't say, Oh, we should only have bookstores. If and if we can't support a bookstore, we shouldn't have a library because that just means there's not enough demand for it. We understand in the case of education and libraries and healthcare that there are some things that are a public good that are just really valuable to the community, and that you know, in those cases, that is when you have both taxpayers and philanthropy being big donors and small donors. That help support it that's like not a radical idea it happens in you know many different parts of our life and economy and I think that's a hard part of the one of the hard parts of this discussion is we are kind of implicitly making the case that local news is a little more in that category it's partly a commercial business but partly a public good and there are benefits that are coming from local news that should really be thought of more in that second category like the library and like the schools and like the museums as in the first category. And that's a real different way of thinking about it. It's not a way we've had to think about it for 150 years, but it's not a radical concept in the sense we do it in other sectors. It is more the norm in other countries. And two, a degree we really don't even want to acknowledge those kinds of subsidies has, have been there all along they've just tended to be a little invisible and not discussed
2: yeah and it'll be interesting to see how the industry evolves in terms of nonprofit and for-profit you know there's nonprofit news is certainly growing but for-profit still is the dominant form but to some extent it was encouraging. You and I were both at the night media forum and it was encouraging to hear even, you know, Sue Cross at INN saying, "Look, this is not an either or, it's going to need it's going to need to be a both and." And to some extent, I don't know how much difference it should make. But a nonprofit still has to be sustainable. A nonprofit is not a business model. And a for-profit, I think increasingly, we think we're all understanding, you need to have that sort of community-minded nonprofit mindset that you are a civic institution. And that's, that's your whole purpose in being there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I It's sort of a, in a way you could summarize that what needs to happen is nonprofits have to act more like businesses and businesses have to act more like nonprofits. And exactly the way you're saying it's like local news is a public service profession. And that's true whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit. And the and the for-profits too often have lost the, the plot there and have stopped Thinking of themselves as community institutions that are primarily there to serve the public, and they have to get back to that. And, you know, there's an open question of whether or not an enormous chain that is owned by a hedge fund can do that again. They used to, I mean, the chains, but, you know, that's there's a real question about that. And I agree about the mix, it needing to be a mix of nonprofit and for profit. In fact, I, I kind of had almost gotten so frustrated with the over reliance on nonprofit startups as the solution to everything that I wrote an article which came out yesterday in the Neiman reports that basically said, look, I'm as big a nonprofit booster as anyone. I've spent the last 10 years trying to advocate for more philanthropy for nonprofit. I literally started and ran a nonprofit news organization, but we are not going to solve this just with nonprofit news organizations. We have to come up with ways of helping the commercial sector that wants to serve its communities really well. Okay, that's a big caveat because not all of them do, and we really should get them out of the way. But many, many do want to, many, many are already. In fact, under incredibly difficult circumstances, I was, you know, with Report for America, which I co-founded and was running until a few weeks ago, we we kind of evenly split the newsrooms. We've worked with 300 newsrooms over five years and it's almost exactly split between for-profit and nonprofit newsrooms. And there were just as many cases of for-profit newsrooms that were doing incredible work and really serving public interest as there were nonprofits. Now it's a little bit of a self-selecting group, I will admit, with Report for America because we were picking, you know, what we thought the best newsrooms were, and it tended to be a little bit disproportionately family-owned newspapers on the commercial side as opposed to great big chains but even among the chains you really have to take your hat off to the editors there because they're doing it under tremendous pressure and almost in spite of a lot of bad incentives that are swirling around them so i think it's a little more of a complicated question but it is definitely worth having the discussion of like okay we we get the sort of plan for how to uh encourage nonprofits, right? There's tremendous progress been made on that. There are way more nonprofits that actually do have sustainable business models. Now it's a real thing. These things can grow. These things can survive. It's really exciting, but a little less, less conversation has been had about, okay, what about the commercial entities? What about the family owned papers and the weeklies that are struggling, but are the, in a lot of communities, the only news source? and they're really trying is there anything we can do to make it more likely that they succeed and you know that's why a lot that's why the public policies that we advocate actually are for both are for nonprofits and at least certain types of for-profit entities we have tended to n- not push proposals that only help the nonprofit sector or only help the for-profit sector we we've tried to come up with ones that create the right incentives for all of them.
2: And I think too, there's there's been discussion. I recently had a was talking with someone at a foundation about the National Trust for Local News and what they're doing. He put point blank the question to me, of course I'm in a biased position, but like, should we be saving legacy organizations? And I, you know, I I think it's, again, it's going to be one of those both and. So the Wall Street Journal a few years ago did a really in-depth story on the plight of local news. And one of the things they charted was where a lot of the new startups, you know, mostly digital, but where they were popping up. And and they're, they're great new startups, but unfortunately, they tend to happen in urban areas. They're filling a gap, but they're not filling a They're not an oasis in a desert, right? So these new startups are tending not to really backfill all of those newspapers that we've completely lost. And so I think particularly in these smaller communities where you're not talking about huge dollars, but you're also not talking about huge audiences, we need to help those legacy institutions, which I think is a lot of the policy work you're doing, benefits those people in particular, those institutions in particular.
1: Yeah, you're right. And there's a tendency in the, in the nonprofit world, especially if you're talking about kind of big philanthropy, it tends to gravitate in metropolitan areas. And we are seeing that, you know, now I would say that the, the new breed of nonprofit websites have been way more conscious than I would say the, you know, maybe public TV was in trying to reach broad audiences and not, you know, finding themselves just appealing to wealthy, well-educated audience because they're the donors. But there's still a gravitational pull in that direction and there's still an emphasis, you know, and a, a kind of centering in those communities. And unfortunately what we've seen is that usually when a weekly paper, like in a rural area goes out of business, it does not get replaced by anything. You know, it does not get replaced by a new nonprofit. Most of them just become news deserts. And this is a bit of a, you know, blunt instrument, but if you look at the count, the counties in America that have no news source at all, so there's a few hundred of those 93% of them are population 50,000 and below. I'd have to run the numbers on, you know, even smaller population, but I think it would hold up even if it was 20,000. So, in other words, the news desert phenomenon probably disproportionately hurts smaller towns and rural areas. And, you know, this actually kind of comes back to a political point, which is I will, you know, it's really, really important to us that any effort to help save local news be nonpartisan and bipartisan, it would be a very bad development if this just became like a Democratic Party thing, Democrats helping the media and Republicans opposing that. And you could totally see how that might happen. But A, that would further erode trust. And but B, it just misses something, which is that the victims of this problem are just as often, if not more often, conservatives. People who live in rural areas and small towns, like they are really being harmed. By what's happening in local news so they ought to care about it it is it is in their own interest to strengthen local news and you know we all know that unfortunately antagonism to the media has become a bit of a platform plank in some parts in the Republican Party so that's the counter thrust but but really if you're if you're being objective about it concern about local news ought to be something that, You know, Republican or conservative voters care as much about as more progressive voters, and should really be a nonpartisan issue.
2: Yeah, there there has been a a lot of talk in journalism circles about underserved audiences, but I think we're still not doing a good job at addressing the rural issue. But you know, we also cannot leave this discussion. I think without talking about ethnic media, Joaquin Alvarado was at our convention last year, and one of the things he was talking about in one of our groups was. There were some big initiatives and some major markets with big foundations coming in to help serve minority audiences. And they come in there and don't talk to the ethnic media that's been around for 100 years and is already serving a big portion of that audience. And they need to evolve and they need support just like the mainstream media does. And I know one of the things you and I have talked about, and I think you're starting to work with them, is what's happened in New York with the Ad Boost Initiative out of the Center for Community Media and CUNY. And that had a a major ethnic component to that. So can you talk a little bit about just the, the whole topic, and then specifically ad boost.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I definitely agree with the point that Joaquin made, and it's it comes back to the previous conversation about nonprofits and for-profits. Most, for, pro, most ethnic publications are for-profits. So if you're someone who says, no, we need to move to an entirely nonprofit system, whether you admit it or not, you are saying we're going to get rid of black newspapers. And Hispanic newspapers, because that's what they are, and in some cases they were quite literally created by formerly enslaved people as for profits, because they thought that was the only way they would be able to truly maintain independence. So it's not a minor point that they have that they are for-profit businesses for a reason, and they are just as committed to their serving their public as as you know a nonprofit version is. So what they did in New York City is really interesting. They they basically said. We're not asking for new money. We're just saying the government of New York City already spends a bunch of money on advertising, public service ads, things like that. Anyway, it's got a lot of money, and they did a study and discovered most of it was going to a handful of big papers, New York Times and Daily News, and that was just among the advertising that was being spent on print. If you step back even further, some of it's going to Google and Facebook and billboards and cable TV and things like that. So they just said... Hey, half of that ought to go to community newspapers. And in this case, that mostly meant ethnic newspapers, as that's in New York City often what what it is. And so they work, the journalism school at CUNY worked with the city to basically develop a policy where 50% of the this ad spending would go to community newspapers. And the mayor, de Blasio at the time, put it through as an executive order and then a kind of variant of it was then passed as a law. And they've gone through two cycles now and it's really been very effective. It's for little newspapers that suddenly, you know, had no advertising from the city and now get $50,000 or $60,000, in some cases more than that. It was really very meaningful. And it's just a really provocative thought because every every government does Ad spending and the federal government does that. On the federal level, the federal government spends about a billion dollars a year on advertising. So, you know, you could play the mental game of like, well, imagine if half of that went to local news, $500 million a year. I mean, that's bigger than the entire budget of the corporation for public broadcasting, just to give you a sense of scale. So, there's real interest in this model of Let's look at the state advertising budgets, or in some cases, city advertising budgets across the country and try to get it funneled a little more. So it has like a double benefit. You know, the government still has to achieve its results. Like we're not telling them to waste their money. It still has to be, you know, it's going to be incumbent on the newspapers or the websites to prove that this is an effective place to put your advertising dollars. You can't expect, you know, the taxpayers to just agree to waste money on something like that. But, you know, I think there's very strong cases that they are effective advertising. And so it could be a really, you know, a really interesting public policy kind of approach. Now there's a risk to it too, which I think we should be very clear headed and clear eyed about, which is this gets a little close to the scary scenario that I mentioned early on and that there's It is the city of New York that is basically making the final decisions about where these ads could go. And it's not hard to imagine that in the hands of a mischievous mayor that they could figure out ways of turning up or down the ad budget for a particular newspaper based on whether they had favorable coverage or not. Now, I think there are solutions to that. There are other countries have wrestled with this. CUNY has done an amazing job of sort of watchdogging the whole thing, which is probably part of the solution. You probably need like a a university or a nonprofit group as part of the package to kind of help guide this and watchdog it. But if you can do it, it's a really neat idea because, as I said, it doesn't involve any new money. It's money the government's going to be spending anyway. These are really good, often effective ways of getting the message out because they do tend to be more trusted by readers. So it's it's uh,
2: it's a really creative idea. So I think you got started really in policy work, working on the LJSa. Is that right? The Local Journalism Sustainability Act. We actually started at the beginning of COVID, and the very very first thing we
1: advocated for. Which I don't know that we really had any success, but it was just getting our toes in the water. Was the idea that as we're spending gazillions of dollars on public service ads around COVID, we should make sure that a whole bunch of that goes through local news because local news is about to face a po- an apocalypse, you know, from COVID. Now, as it happened, I got to say PPP turns out to have been like an incredibly effective bit of public policy. It doesn't get nearly enough credit, but I saw it with the newspaper industry. As you know, like we were, if that hadn't happened, we would have had just an absolute wipeout of thousands of newspapers dying. And that didn't actually happen. We've seen this slow decline, but it could have just been an apocalypse. And it didn't happen. Anyway, so we were looking at trying to get COVID ad money, kind of getting to local news. But then after that, as a coalition, it's kind of a, it's a very broad coalition. The Rebuild Local News Coalition it includes, you know, conservative rural weeklies and uh, radical urban nonprofits, and uh, you know, digital onlys and print weeklies, and as well as foundations, things like that. So the process of figuring out what, what we could all agree on was interesting, and but it, it led to certain policies, and and so we ended up really liking this bill called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And it had a couple provisions that you already mentioned, but one was the payroll tax credit for hiring and um, retaining reporters. One was the tax credit for small businesses that advertised with local news. And the third was a tax credit for consumers to buy subscriptions or donate to local news organizations. So you can see a pattern there is that it often is amplifying the buying power of a consumer or a business. It's not a uh, a kind of grant-making process. And we got just painfully close on one of those. The payroll tax credit actually passed the House of Representatives and came within two votes in the Senate as part of the reconciliation bill. And it would have been really a very big deal. It would have been $1.7 billion over five years, which I think would have made it the largest federal government infusion of support since the Postal Act that President Washington signed. But it didn't quite get through. And now the House of Representatives having turned uh, Republican, we're thinking that it's probably not a not a high odds bet on the national level. So we are really focused on state and local policymaking right now.
2: And that was where I was hoping you would go with that. So how do you see, what are the opportunities you see at the state level and how do you see your work being different with a more state-focused effort? So it
1: mostly is a kind of similar menu of policy options. When the federal bill went down, we started getting calls or emails from people around the states like you uh, and folks at other states saying, you know, if the federal government's not going to do it, Maybe we could do it here in Colorado or Wisconsin or Massachusetts. So, you know, in Wisconsin, there's a bill currently before the legislature that would do the tax credit for small businesses that advertise in local news. They caught you all in Colorado uh, kicked that around a little bit last session. And different places are trying different things. In California, they gave a, a big allotment of $25 million to the journalism school at Berkeley to create a fellowship program for journalists into local newsrooms, Uh, Massachusetts bill. They're looking at doing a credit for subscriptions and there's, and then as you said, New York city and other places are looking at taking leave at government ad spending. And you know, what's going to fit any given state will depend on the politics. Uh, It'll depend on the structure of their government. Like one state said, yeah, we'd love to do the tax credit and i think our role the rebuild local news coalition will be to come in and support local efforts it still it needs to have i think to succeed it needs to have strong local leadership whether that's a press association or a community foundation or just a group of you know publications that are really grabbing the issue And then we will come in and work with them. We have the kind of policy expertise and background, and we see what other states are doing. We see, you know, what's tripped up these laws over here or what the questions from the financial analysts were over there. And here's a possible solution. And in some cases, we'll provide staff help. And then the other thing we'll do is that we have this national coalition. So the, you know, the the local members in a particular state from the weekly newspaper association were from the... LION, which is the digital hyperlocals, we will help mobilize them to work with the local press association or whoever's taking the lead to try to get something through.
2: So I want to end with rapid fire questions, but I want to do two things before we do that. First, which you just referenced, there's an alphabet soup of organizations that support newsrooms. National level, some focus quite a bit on legislative policy. So what what do you see the distinction between what you're doing and what a news media alliance, an LMA, uh, America's Newspaper, some of those organizations focus on, and how do you work together?
1: Well, one answer is that our coalition, the center of gravity is medium and small-sized players. So. We work often with the News Media Alliance, which tends to represent the big newspaper chains. There definitely is a lot of things we agree on, but we wanted to have an organization where the where the emphasis and the focus was on helping medium play, size players, small players, innovators, startups, and also that was platform ag- agnostic. We really want to be very future friendly. So I think that's the I think that's the big difference. And honestly, there are some there are some policies that we advocate that some of their members don't like. And specifically, we prefer policies that counter the consolidation of newspapers owned by private equity firms. We just don't think that's a good trend, and we would rather stop it from happening more. And if anything, uh, if there are ways of kind of deconsolidating and replanting some of those papers back into the communities, we like that. So that's an area where we actually have a little bit of a philosophical difference but i will say on a lot of stuff we end up working together because there there's all sorts of things we agree on like the news media Alliance supported the local journalism sustainability act it wasn't their main priority they were focused on the there was a bill to try to force google and facebook to uh pay money to uh local newsrooms that was their priority But they, you know, we all agree on things like uh, shield laws and efforts to make it easier to file freedom of information requests. There's a lot that we all agree on. But I think on these business model questions, there's a little bit of a different emphasis.
2: And then last question before the rapid fire questions, you know, as you said, you've been working in the policy arena since COVID uh, and you are now have formed Rebuild Local News Coalition as its own nonprofit and you're. Stepped back from Report for America and are on the advisory board there. As you look back at your time there, five years, I think you said, what are you most proud of? And what do you think the lasting impact will be? And where do you hope it goes? Oh, God, I'm incredibly proud of
1: Report for America. You know, I was the co founder of Report for America, but I really, I proposed the idea back in 2014. And took a while to, to get off the ground and find a home for it and support and in the five years that it's been running now 547 reporters have been placed in more than 300 local newsrooms around the country about 43% of these are journalists of color which is a bit of a breakthrough, I think, given how much newsrooms have struggled trying to ha- be representative of their communities. We're incredibly proud of that. We're very proud of the role that we've helped some of the nonprofit newsrooms to succeed. There's a, a wonderful website in Minnesota called sahan Journal, which is now sort of much celebrated and has like 15 employees and just got a big grant from American Journalism Project. And they cover the immigrant community in Minnesota and do an incredible job there. Well, the entire editorial staff of the Sahan Journal for the first two years was Report for America. Core members were very, so that they wouldn't even uh, exist, and I'll think, without Report for America. And we're also proud of the work that the reporters have done in the commercial newspapers because they injected in those newsrooms a kind of, public service spirit and commitment to certain beats. I mean, they've won scores of awards for public service journalism, our people, and uh, they're really living out the idea that is certainly not limited to them. Many other reporters who aren't in our program have this faith and this belief, but that local journalism, local reporting is a public service profession. They take it really seriously. They also do service projects in high schools and, and middle schools to work with students there To help stand up a high school newspaper or a podcast or things like that to try to get younger people interested in either journalism or just truth and verification and being able to discern the difference between real news and news that's made up. So I'm very proud of that. And then the last thing I would say is we're proud that while we think the journalism is, you know, the main thing we focus on, we really put a big emphasis on working with the newsrooms to help them with their business models too, because we wanted these reporters to, you know, we didn't want it where the reporter went away after two years and it just kind of went back to the way it was, even though they were we still, community would have gotten two years of great reporting. But so we work with the newsrooms to try to help them develop a, what we call the third revenue stream, which is really donations and philanthropy and support from the community. Because at the end of the day, community journalism is not going to survive unless the community supports
2: it. It's a great program. We have members who had fellows and they all sing its praises and Newsroom I was over had a fellow. I feel like I let her down, but I saw firsthand the support that the program gives to the fellow and how it does. It's, you know, This is not an extended internship program. This is really great professional development and even the community match I think is an important piece of it. So kudos for, for all of that. And so now the rapid-fire questions, and your answers don't have to be rapid-fire, but I'll just throw a handful at you. Compared to a year ago, are you more or less optimistic about the future of local news? Definitely more optimistic. I think you have more
1: cases of nonprofit news organizations that seem to have found actual business models and seem to be sustainable. You have more instances of commercial entities The one I was just thinking about the other day was the Boston Globe and the Minneapolis Star Tribune that have really found their footing in digital subscriptions, which I think everyone agrees is kind of the key to making it in the long run uh, as a for-profit entity. And there's been some really serious progress on that front, I think, in the commercial area. And I think we're also seeing a. uh, – we'll we'll see in a few months, but it sounds like there may be a little bit of rumblings of increased – interest from the philanthropic sector to support local news that's really important I hope that happens so all of those things I like compared to a couple of years ago where it was pretty much as you said doom and gloom really some nasty trend lines those trend lines are still pretty nasty but there's a real counter story now of innovation and creativity and not only innovation but innovation that seems to be working and giving a real prospect of permanence, that these are real models that can stick around. And so that there's not enough of them yet, but, it, but at least it's not just a theory anymore. There's real models you can point to of saying, like, see, this can be done.
2: Absolutely. And as I mentioned, you and I just came back from Night Media Forum. That is the most optimistic gathering of journalists I think I've been to maybe ever. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't just wishful thinking. There There were concrete examples and sort of a sense that, The disruption might be leading to something new that is positive in many aspects. Since you've worked a lot with young journalists through Report for America, is there a piece of advice, a single piece of advice you would give young journalists and and a piece of advice you would tell them to ignore?
1: Ooh, let's see. Well, I think the main advice is kind of follows on the last question, which is that This actually may end up being a pretty good time to be a local journalist. That may sound like a weird thing to say because it is really hard to find good jobs. But there's never been more creativity in our field or not in many decades. There's so many opportunities to do really good work that I certainly try to be encouraging that it's worth taking a shot. I think that young people need to be part of figuring this out, you know, that, that, and not just the journalism part, but the business part too. Uh, so that's also advice is like, don't put blinders on and think that you shouldn't be thinking about the business side. We just need, we need all hands on deck figuring out the business model problem. And I guess the other advice would be having said all that there's a lot of instability, you know, and you kind of have, I think you kind of have to go into any job sort of thinking that. And the instability can strike anywhere, you know it's sort of uh I remember in the first few years we had people we had reporters who decided not to do report for America because they were going to be placed uh, in a non nonprofit newsroom and they thought that was unstable, so they went to a commercial newsroom and then they were laid off a year later and vice versa, so that's just like the reality of it, and you're just gonna to have to be. Uh, resilient in a way I really didn't have to be when I was coming in because it was just more stability to it. Ooh, advice that they shouldn't take. I guess, boy, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I guess the advice that there's no such thing as objectivity is advice I would not take. Uh, Not that I think objectivity is like an attainable goal, but the notion of intellectual honesty as a guide star for journalism and journalists, I definitely still believe in, and there's a little bit of a fad toward, I guess, advocacy journalism, which which definitely has its place. Like I, in fact, you have worked at advocacy journalism organizations, there's a real role, but I think in the local news space, what we really need to do right now is reestablish trust with the readers, And that's going to require us being really scrupulously fair-minded
2: in how we approach stories. And just to build on your business point, because I I feel like my description of the night media forums would be incomplete without pointing out, it wasn't really just a gathering of journalists. It was business leaders, it was community leaders, community foundations, libraries, things like that. And one of the things that I think was very notable was a lot of the success stories we were hearing was because they were getting support and coaching on the business side And some of that was innovation and new business models. Some of it was just best practices and, you know, what's a reserve fund and how much should you have and how do you manage growth? Those sorts of things. Do you have a favorite failure of yours? Something that might've been painful at the time, but led you down a path that took you somewhere you needed to be or something you you particularly learned from?
1: Ooh, what a good question. There's so many to choose from. I guess When I turned over the reins at Report for America recently and I had my kind of farewell party and I was thinking about this question, at least in the context of Report for America, of like, well, what, you know, what did we get right in our initial assumptions and what, how did, what did we learn? And there was a decent number of things that we had right, but there were quite, quite a number of through where, where our, our initial assumptions were wrong and we adapted I think one of them is that uh, we were almost entirely focused on accountability reporting initially. You know, we just viewed that as the highest and best use of our people and of journalism, and if you weren't having that kind of image, there's sort of a little bit of pressure from funders in that direction. You know, they want to show dramatic impact. And so we did really good work on that, but I think it was a little misguided in the sense that the kind of bread and butter community journalism that's less sexy and doesn't win you awards of covering high school sports and obituaries and, you know, the theater production and the opening of the new playground or things like that are really important and for different reasons, but they're, they're important for binding together a community, making people not hate each other, you know, giving a community identity, you know, and we learned from that and became more open to other types of beasts. This year for the first time we have in Report for America, we have sports reporters, which we never did before because initially we thought, oh, that's not civically important to accountability reporting. And we've kind of evolved on that. And I think it's and I'm, I'm, I'm glad we did. The other mistake we made initially is we were always very, very conscious of being in every state, being in red states and blue states. But we finally figured out that a lot of our red state programs were actually in blue dots within red states. And I just said, like, that's not the same thing. Like, that's not what we're after. So we, we set a goal of having 30% of our programs be in rural areas, which I think we've hit now.
2: What is your favorite place to think big?
1: My favorite place—walking my dog in Prospect Park—I would say is where the highest percentage of big ideas arrive. There is something about walking. Could be almost anywhere, honestly, but that's the place where I—I I think over the years I've had the most
2: free, you know, free-ranging thoughts. You know, I think I think this industry is tough, and it's hard on people's mental health. And you dealt with a lot of young journalists who were discovering that. What recommendations do you have for just maintaining your sanity in the daily grind?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And it is a real focus of Report for America. I mean, our staff has done an amazing job on that. They have workshops and resources all the time on mental health issues. It is really hard to be a local reporter out there now. Much harder, I think, than when I was doing it and then covid hit and it's it's really tough i mean and you know what what the the folks that have done these workshops for us have said i mean some of it's obvious you know take care of yourself stuff get help if you're struggling be connected i would add a few other things like trying to be connected to the community in ways other than your job whatever that is through a church or a gym or a civic organization something like that that seems to really help a lot in our case take advantage of the peer network i think actually you know one of the best things about report for america is something that we barely had anything to do with which is just these reporters connect with each other we occasionally would try to you know organize it and that never really worked they would just go find each other and and i think if you talk to you know graduates of report for america that actually often they will often say that some of the best thing about the program is just the other report for america uh, core members that they met in their state or on their beat or just and i i think that's really helped but uh, the other thing i would i would say is when you this i guess is specific to report for america is try to try to really understand yourself and what you need like there were there were reporters who Thought that they really wanted the adventure of going out to some place that they'd never been to before. But it turned out they'd never been in a small town before. And they got really lonely. And then COVID hit and it became a really hard thing. So there's a balance between pushing yourself to do things that you have never done before, which is great. But also be aware of what your own needs are. And if there's no shame in saying, you know, I want to stay near family, that's where I'd rather do it. That's fine. Sometimes we, as journalists, there's such an ethos of toughness and grittiness that maybe we're embarrassed to admit things like that. But the job itself is hard enough without making it any
2: harder by putting unrealistic expectations on yourself. Yeah. And then the penultimate question, the last one will be media recommendations. So if your unconscious mind wants to spin on that, (laughs) Uh, if you project five years down the road, Rebuild Local has been wildly successful. What does that look like to you? I have an exact answer for this
1: because I was putting together a fundraising deck the other day and I said, you know, I need a slide in here for what things would look like if five years from now they were successful. So I said 10,000 or more local reporters throughout the country made possible through various public policies. And that would make a huge debt. I mean, it doesn't, you know, we've lost something like 40,000 or 50,000 reporters, but I think if wisely targeted getting. Ten thousand reporters back in the field. And I think ultimately we should shoot for something more like twenty-five thousand. But from the policy part, if we could, you know, get ten thousand more reporters in the field, that would make a big
2: difference. And back to the optimism point, I think one good thing that could come out of this is those ten thousand reporters. You have an opportunity to shape what that looks like. I mean, as an industry, we do that. It, it's the mistakes we've made in the past in terms of representation and inclusiveness including the community and the journalism and all of that i think this gives us an opportunity to have a new start at that
1: i i totally agree i think there's a real shot that we could create a local news system that's really much better than what we've had before because in addition to the, the main reason being what you said like even in the golden years there was horrible cases of either communities not being represented at all or even worse being badly and represented or maligned especially black communities but but there's a second part too which is that we now because of technology have incredible storytelling tools that bring our journalism to life in amazing multimedia ways and can use technology around data searches and things like that so any given i think any given reporter has the ability to do more and do better than a given reporter
2: 30 years ago. So that's exciting. Yeah. And then that last question, riffing on Ezra Klein, but broadening it to any form of media, movies, books, magazines, podcasts, three to five pieces of media that you would recommend.
1: Yeah, one, one just... I was trying to think of things that aren't like nerdy journalism things. Like I do read the Poulter Institute newsletter and the, and CJR and the trade press. And there are really, there's a lot of good stuff there, but that's not so interesting. So of, of the political journals out there, the one I actually enjoy is called the bulwark, which is a kind of, I guess it's never Trump Republicans. I just find them to be more unpredictable in a lot of ways than publications that are, more solidly in one one camp or not but my dirty pleasure podcast is a podcast called the history of rock through 500 songs it's amazing it's this guy who just I don't know he's read every book ever written about the history of rock and he's come up with these just incredible podcasts about each song or each period of history that's like my diversion from Local journal. When I don't want to listen to something about politics or local journalism, that's where I go.
2: Thank you for listening to the Local News Matters podcast. And thanks to Steve for your time and all the passion, innovation, and collaboration you've brought to the industry. Check back next episode for my conversation with Dave Perry and Joaquin Alvarado, who will discuss their effort to apply the Green Bay Packers model of community ownership to the Aurora Sentinel. A final thanks to our production partners at Pirate Audio. Pirate Audio believes every community deserves great things to listen to, and they are on a mission to help their local newsrooms reach their communities via audio. If you're interested in starting a podcast or need production support, let me know and I'd be happy to connect you. If you like this episode and what we're doing more generally, please follow in your favorite podcast app. Leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. I appreciate the support. You can find past episodes, full transcripts and relevant links and sign up for our newsletter at localnewsmatterspodcast.com or for lazy typists like me at LNMPod.com. You can also follow us on most social media at LNMPod. If you have recommendations of others doing interesting and innovative work in local news, let me know through the contact form at the website
0: LNMPod.com.